friends, librarians, and all you ilk. Welcome to episode five of the SS Librarianship podcast. We are having our fifth uh, fifth episode anniversary. So five is like the wood. dirt, dirt, wood anniversary. Diamonds. <laughs> Where are my diamonds, Sam? It's totally diamonds. It's totally not diamonds. Anyway, so we've got a great episode for you today. We are talking um, to our fellow library school buddy, uh, Vicky Chan, about um, her work at Community Library in Vancouver, which is a out on the shelves library, is a uh, queer library, uh, queer at the Queer Resource Center here in Vancouver, which is a really amazing place uh what yeah, else we, we, have a, we have a great chat with vicky coming up yeah. so i think you guys will really enjoy it um we're also going to introduce a new segment where we talk a little bit about librarian tropes in the media we're still in the market for a name for that segment so yep. we'll put out a call later on yep. um and this week is all about what else the sexy librarian of course the naughtiest of tropes the naughty librarian <laughs> so we're going to get a little bit into the kind of the politics and, and how we feel about that trope um, yeah, where we think it may have come from, and it's 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 a little conflicting. Yeah, yeah. So, so hopefully you'll enjoy that too. So uh, let's let's dive right in. We've got a big one for you this week. And Vicky uh, was nice enough to join us for Mind Grapes as well, so she'll be able yes. to tell us uh, what's been on her Mind Grapes. I'm Sam Mills, and I would pay cash money to watch a feature-length film of Charlie Day screaming. I'm Ali Sullivan, and I now declare this podcast a bitch-free zone. <laughs> So, Vicky, what have you been reading or watching or listening to or playing? Are you a gamer at all now? Well, I wish I was gaming, but um, my computer doesn't have the capacity for running games any newer than like 2000. So I hear <laughs> that. that. <laughs> um, actually, on my way here, right before um, I was, <laughs> I'm a total sucker for dogs. So I was watching um, Cesar Milan's Dog Whisperer show. Nice. <laughs> Back to back to back <laughs> for the last two days is all I did. Yeah. That's a good show. It is. It's Pick up any good tips from Caesar for dog ownership one day? Calm and assertive energy. Ah. That's all he ever says, I swear. <laughs> all right. That's a good tip. I don't know if that would work with my dad's dog. My, my dad loves that show, but he has these two hyper little Boston Terriers and doesn't matter how calm and assertive your energy is they do what they want well i think the best part of that show was they had an episode where they taught you how to pick the best dog for you and caesar went for the really like not like tame but like calm dogs like when they were puppies mm -hmm. um and people always thought he would pick the active alert ones but he was like nope i want the mid-level energy ones okay. ah, so, so you I'm can like, kind of bring them up to your energy level kind of thing or like just make sure they keep staying that way so you can train them better but i don't know if it works for cats because i want a cat and i don't think cats work that way <laughs> training training cats is is never a, an easy or a good idea in any way um i mean we've tried to train ours but i mean the the only thing you can really do with a cat is you're gonna have to do the spray bottle thing that's really the only thing they respond to is when you spray them <laughs> and they don't enjoy it not that they're supposed to, but the trick with that too is you're you're not supposed to just spray them while they're watching you. You were supposed to do it surreptitiously because if they know where the water's coming from, they're just gonna get mad at you. But if it's just like you know the universe punishing them for scratching the couch, um, then they're they're more receptive to it. But uh, uh. which is kind of hilarious because with the dog, 
if it's coming from you, then that's a problem for them. They want you to love them. <laughs> the universe, they don't give a crap about it. If they don't know where it's coming from, it doesn't matter to them. Oh, man. Uh, not not to like meta podcast, but uh, but Griffin McElroy on My Brother, My Brother and Me was talking about this. And he was talking about the fact that people gave him the weirdest looks when he took his cat outside on a leash <laughs> to train it to go outside. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the fact that like we, we feel like it's perfectly natural for a dog to, you know, want to be harnessed. It's not like they want to run and play and be wild. Of course they do. It's just a societal convention, right? Yeah. I don't know. So Caesar Milan, huh? Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's a fun show. There's another one with a guy like in New York who's all hip and happening and helps people with their like tiny New York apartment dogs. I can't remember what it's called now. But. Oh, I don't <laughs> like those tiny dogs. I only watch a show because he works with big dogs because they're the ones who tend to be more aggressive, like pit bulls and German shepherds. And right. The ones with problems with. Um, yeah. Actually, there was a very interesting episode where he was working with wolf dog hybrids. Oh yeah, I think I saw that one too. Yeah, that was he was working with uh, someone who specialized in training like wolves and mm-hmm. um, that type of you know hybrid dog. And just watching that show made me cringe because I was like, <laughs> why would you want to breed them? Like, how does that happen even? Well, I've not I've not seen a lot of this show, but there is also a Cat Whisperer show, <gasps> and it does exist. Um, the, I think the guy who the guy who is the, the Caesar Milan of the Cat Whisperer show is bonkers, like, like it's uh, yeah. Apparently, it exists, and he does train cats, kind of. But like some of the cats they have on that show are are insane. Like wait, the, the wait, hissing, to clarify, hissing, spitting. To, to clarify, his name is not Bonkers, is it? No, no. Okay. Sorry, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's crazy. Like, okay. Like apparently, like you know, he like I think he wears a wears a bowler hat all the time and has like mystical energies and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. But the cats he has on that show are really funny because the cats are like, you know, crazy hissing, spitting into corners, and you know, like wild cats. Whereas my cat is like, yeah, he he he'll you know scratch the furniture but that's pretty much the most annoying thing he does well he also you know he loves to sing the song of his people so he'll just <laughs> meow and meow but what are you gonna do he's a cat what are you gonna do so so you're a cat person then vicky that's what you want to go for i used to be a dog person then i realized how much work they were and yeah. at this point in my life i don't know if i'm ready to walk Especially a very, like I like the big dogs, but they're the ones who usually need a lot more exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So cats seem a lot more low maintenance in that regard. That's true. As you start your your busy jet setting librarian <laughs> career, you can leave them home for eight hours at a time, and it won't be a problem. Right? Yeah. I mean, I I love a dog's devotion, but a cat just seems. Well, that's that's why I was watching the show and thinking if I could apply to cats because I really want to look for, well, when I plan to adopt one, um, one that's amenable to affection one that's cuddly mm-hmm. i've had a lot of experiences with cats that just hiss and scratch at you if you come too close yeah so i wonder if there's a strategy to finding that perfect cat that likes to cuddle and oh well maybe you should visit mr bonkers perhaps <laughs> he'll have some tips <laughs> awesome all right so what about you ali what have you been watching or reading or what what not well, I've been doing a little bit of uh, memory lane work, as it were, because when I was, you know, when I was a teenager, um, it was just me and my mom a lot of the time because my dad, my dad's still in the picture, of course, but he worked overseas. So my mom and I fancied ourselves uh, the Gilmore Girls quite a lot, you know, with our with our witty, quippy witticisms and, and how close we were and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I've been getting into the DVDs of Gilmore Girls and 
giving those a second run through to see if it holds up and they're they're just so funny <laughs> i love that freaking show and i think you told me the other day that you were um that your plan was to introduce john to 15 year old Allie. uh yeah well that's going over perfectly well um well no you know it's it's funny because i mean when i was 15 i of course identified with rory because she was the teenager and you know she was the one in school and so smart and everything and um but now i find myself much more identifying with lorelei who's the mom and i'm just like oh god what has happened to me that i have become the mother in one of my favorite shows <laughs> and um yeah it's 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 just kind of a funny transition to to go through to be like Oh, Rory's behaving like such a teenager, and it's it's really funny. We've just gotten to the one where she broke up with Dean the first time, and yeah, no, she's eat, she was eating she was eating out of um of like a bucket of Ben and Jerry's, and I was like, where do I get my hands on a bucket of Ben and Jerry's? <laughs> like, you know, you used to you just get the little ones because they're so good, but they had like an honest honest to peanut bucket full of Ben and Jerry's, and I was like, where does one get one of those? I'm gonna go with that's probably the prop department at the CW. <laughs> you have to, or whatever that was back in the day, the WB. I don't know. I wonder what it says about me that as I was watching that show the first time, and granted, I don't think it was in my late teens, maybe, but I always really kind of didn't like Rory, especially in the later seasons. I was always a Lorelai girl, so I guess I'm old before my time. <laughs> I don't know. Vicky, did you ever watch that show? No, I was a bookworm when I was little mm. so all these shows like I've heard of them but I've never actually sat down and like watched them which <laughs> is one of my greatest regrets <laughs> uh, and with all the time we have on our hands as library <laughs> students I'm sure you'll catch up soon yeah yeah sneaking an episode between work uh, that sounds, that yeah. sounds good no, it's, it's a good show I'm glad you're getting a chance to watch through it again I guess I guess we can give a shout out to my mom for that one because she yeah. gave me the DVDs and I'm giving them to you <laughs> Yeah, you're you're my enabler in in this situation, um, but I've also just finished uh, Neil Gaiman's new book, uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is just a it's just a beautiful little gem of a book. You know, it's it's short, it's it's crystalline, it's sweet, it's sad, and it was uh, it was really lovely. And we went to see Neil Gaiman talk about it, and the way he talks about it is really interesting. Um, it's a, it's a textbook, you know, book to use if you were doing a class on magic realism. Um, you know, it's very much like that. So I thought it was, it was really interesting. It was a really just like a, just a beautiful little afternoon read kind of thing. If you feel like you want to be a little bit sad, because <laughs> it's, you know, it's got, it's not, it's not a sad ending, but it's not a happy ending either. It's just kind of a, kind of a gentle melancholy, which is sometimes nice, I guess. I don't know. What have you been up to, Sam? Um, well, I've been reading Snuff by Terry Pratchett. By Terry Pratchett. I think there might be one called Snuff by Chuck Palahniuk, too. I'm not reading that one. <laughs> um, that so, one's probably about cocaine. Yeah, this one is definitely not about cocaine. It's about <laughs> as far as being <laughs> about cocaine as you can possibly get. Uh, there's some troll drug use in it, I guess. But <laughs> anyway, so for people familiar with the Discworld series by Terry Pratchett, there are 30-something, I think probably close to 40 books in that series now, but there are streams within the series, and um, Snuff is the latest, and possibly last, it really depends um, on what happens with him in the next few years, I guess, in the stream that's about the City Watch. 
Um, and so it started out with sort of, you know, the three guys who run, ran the Night Watch in this city that was overrun by crime and guilds of criminals. And it's slowly grown over the course of, I think, six or eight books into quite a large police force run by one of those original Night Watchmen, and he's kind of the main character. And so these books are always really fun because they're murder mysteries set in this insane fantasy world full of magic and magical creatures and whatever, but the guy at the center of them, Sam Vimes, is really, he does not care for magic. He <laughs> likes solving crimes the ordinary way. <laughs> and, um, but I was warned before I started Snuff by a couple of friends of mine who were big Terry Pratchett fans that it might be kind of an uncomfortable experience, especially if you're a big Terry Pratchett fan, which I am, because Terry Pratchett, as some of our listeners probably know, has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's in the last few years. And he's such a brilliant writer. I mean, he writes these 400-page novels that don't have chapter breaks but fit together perfectly. He's, he can hold so much in his brain. And I think reading this book, it's still an excellent book by book standards. But by Terry Pratchett standards, it's kind of not quite there. It's not as tight as his prose usually is. And it's, it's a little sad that way. But it's still been a very enjoyable read so far. I'm about halfway through, and I'm, I'm having a very good time, as I always do with him. <laughs> so still highly recommended, but... Yeah, it's a little sad. Yeah. So I guess that's what's on our mind graves this week. Yeah. Vicky, yeah. while you were homesick, were you doing anything else other than watching Caesar Milan? Uh, uh, yeah, the homework. Uh, the, the homework. Um, I might have written a chapter for my novel, but I wasn't ah, sure. Interesting. I It's my guilty pleasure. I write trashy bodice rippers and post them <laughs> online. Fantastic. and yeah, I just passed the 50,000 word mark. So, hey. congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's good. All right. So what's the what's the premise of this one or do you not share until they're done? Ah, uh, well, it's already online, so anyone who has oh, okay. the, uh, sense of googling. We're going to have to throw the link in the show notes. <laughs> I I need to no, um I have to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> my my latest project was a uh, historical uh, romance novel with no historical research being done. Nice. As far as I'm concerned, it's set somewhere in Scotland, anywhere from early to mid to late medieval times, as far as I'm concerned. Did you write Outlander? No. Are you Diana Gallagher? <laughs> <laughs> you caught me, you caught me. No. <laughs> actually, actually, I read that a number of years ago, and the first book was okay. Um, yeah. I, I never really like got into it after the first book. The second book, when you know they were talking about her children, and after that, it was just it just spiraled out of control for me, and I yeah. never could wrap my head around that afterward. But the first book was relatively well written. Um, yeah, hard the, to follow at times, but it was good. The first one was weird for me because I read it. It was recommended to me by a friend, and I had actually gone on a vacation with my parents, like just me and my mom and my dad. And um, it has some rather, you know, it's it's a kind of a bodice rippery novel. And I remember, you know, reading it, like sitting in the back of the car, reading it and like giggling to myself. My mom's <laughs> like, Allie, what are you reading? I'm like, nothing. There's no penises in this book. None whatsoever. <laughs> And yeah, so like, yeah, I agree. Like it was a well-written book. I actually really enjoyed the first one, but um, yeah, I, I tried to read the second one and it just didn't feel the same. You know, it's kind of like the, they remind me also of the Philippa Gregory books. I don't know if you right, read those yeah. ones. Yeah. Other Boleyn Girl and yeah, there's a whole bunch of those um, that I was into for quite a while, which aren't quite as bodice rippery. They're much more kind of historically grounded, historically grounded and female intrigue and yeah. whatever, but they kind of reminded me of the of the similar thing, the kind of historical fiction kind of idea with 
but yeah. So, so yeah, I have weird yeah. memories of that no, book. No, Outlander was is very much like it, it has no genre really. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a mishmash of like everything. Like yeah. sci-fi, time travel, romance, mm-hmm. history. Yeah. Um, what freaked me out was, you know, how she is married present day to her husband and then she goes back time and like yeah. gets married again and then she meets some guy who was apparently the like the ancestor of her present day husband. Oh really? Oh, and gross. it was just really convoluted <laughs> and confusing and kind of creepy at times. Oh man, it's like the man who folded himself by David yeah, Gerald. You yeah. read that one? Yeah. Oh man, that's a messed up book. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I used to work at Chapters, and mm-hmm. the the demographics of who would tell me that they loved Outlander were so all over the place, probably because of that mishmash of genres. These sweet little old ladies who probably, you know, didn't know anything about time travel were just like, this is excellent. And then you would get these people who were super into time travel as well. Yeah. 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 Hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, a little, little, um, plug for Vicky's new (laughs) online novel then. We're going to make sure people know how to find those things. Well, I think if we're talking about uh, trashy novels, this is probably a good segue into our into our discussion this week about um, a new segment we haven't named yet. So if you have a good name for it, but we're talking about sort of librarian tropes. And so let's talk about the naughty librarian. So in this new segment, uh, we want to be talking a little bit about different sort of depictions and tropes of librarians in media. So... Um, talk about how they appear like the the crone or the you know particular characters like I, I'm going to do some more research on Barbara Gordon from the Batman series and we're going to talk about her but um, this week we're going to get into the most obvious trope I think that librarianship is is saddled with and that is the trope of the naughty librarian there's always been this kind of idea of you know the sexy librarian with her hair in a bun and you have overdue books and however are you going to pay those fines so um, you know, we're talking a little bit about uh, sort of the trope of the of the naughty librarian with uh, with our friend who writes bodice ripper novels. So, <laughs> so what do we do? We have any like um, primary thoughts or feelings about the naughty librarian trope? Have you ever had anyone accuse you of being a naughty librarian? Or, well, I think on the spectrum between you know the '50s school librarian with the horn and glasses and the bun who like shushes everyone to the opposite end which is you know the sexy female librarian who you know unbuttons her blouse up to like you know below her bra line <laughs> nice I, little decolletage for <laughs> yeah I, I feel like people definitely accuse me on the the latter end of the spectrum rather than the former. <laughs> um i don't know why maybe it's just my bodice strippers or just my demeanor but um I find it very interesting how there's this kind of like two like this dichotomy almost of you know the the previous trope and then compared to modern day trope of you know sexy versus unsexy like I'm curious as to how that actually came about because you know I've, I've been exposed to this but I've never actually done any research to figure out why that's the case and well Allie actually and this is I think a first for our show <laughs> um, did a little bit of research right on <laughs> research in quotation marks um, about maybe some possible ways in which this trope came about right if by research you mean i went to tv tropes and TV tropes is the best yes this is true um no i went to tv tropes and looked it up and one of the suggestions uh that they had on tv tropes was the suggestion that the kind of sexy intelligent keeper of knowledge was somehow associated with the goddess athena 
which I, I mean, as someone who is, you know, knows my Greek mythology and, you know, I, I am almost minored in classics and I don't, I don't know because people kind of saddle Athena with this general overall idea of uh, she is the goddess of wisdom, but she's much, much more than that. And the wisdom that she does guard isn't necessarily like, you know, information type wisdom. It's, it's actually more toward the spectrum of, um, of like wartime uh, strategy wisdom than, than anything else. So it's kind of a funny idea to, to be attaching this kind of sexualized idea of the librarian with the goddess Athena. I don't know if that's really you know, ap apropos, I guess. Which kind of, I guess, makes you wonder, and we were chatting about this a little before we started recording today, um, if something like that association with Athena is kind of a retcon, is a, a way to make that trope be grounded in some kind of respectable historical root. Because really, I mean, another way to read that trope is that women in professions, particularly intellectual professions, can be a threatening thing to the patriarchy or whatever you <laughs> want to call it, right? And so perhaps this kind of sexualization of not just librarians, but as Vicky was saying earlier, nurses, right? Teachers. And teachers, yeah, is a way to, to demean is a strong word, but to knock those professions down a peg so that they're more about femininity than they are about intelligence or capability or whatever, right? Yeah, but I was thinking, strangely enough, you don't sexualize um, you know, geriatric workers, for example, who are mostly female professions. Yeah. So yeah. I think there's a limit to, you know, what That's you sexualize. Um, That's true. It's sort of the, the more emblematic and more um, easily adaptable to that kind of trope ones, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. And also, I mean, doctors. I mean, I think there are more female doctors now than there are male doctors, and they tend to get mm. more sexualized, I feel like. Um, as the years progress, but maybe that's just me. So, yeah. Well, hey, hey topic for your next <laughs> bodice ripper. Hey? Set it in a surgical unit. <laughs> Too much research there. Are you just trying to get her to write Grey's Anatomy for you? Sandra O's leaving. It's just not going to be the same. I need something to replace it with. <laughs> well, it's it's definitely a, a, an interesting kind of idea, and I mean, another thing is you know, flight attendants are also kind of a traditionally feminine but highly sexualized profession and it's it's kind of an idea of like so is it yeah is it a way of taking women down a peg or is it a way of kind of making it okay for the men who who like intelligent women to kind of have that accessible fantasy like I, I don't know if you know if there's a lot of you know I don't know if it's necessarily I don't know okay for men to like intelligent women? I guess I'm having trouble. Well, or okay for them to, and not just men, but women who like women too, right? I mean, although I think probably in this case, because we're dealing with stereotypes, mm. we're dealing mostly with the male gaze. Um, <laughs> the idea that if your primary reason for liking a woman, for being attracted to a woman, is not her physicality, then there's something a little odd about you. I think that's still maybe there in male culture a little and so maybe maybe there's a way to see the library the sexy librarian trope and related sexy insert profession here tropes as ways for men to justify their attraction to intelligence or capability or you know but she also has big boobs so it's okay <laughs> <laughs> i don't know which is ironic because you know in our classes we talk about how do we envisioned um librarians as you know 
something that only women could do because, you know, men were beyond that, you know. The, he, I think he envisioned women as someone who was just dumb enough that you could, like, you know, do the administrative work of, you know, checking out books, checking in books, and maybe cataloging books. Right, because Dewey himself had built the cataloging system. Right. And so all they were doing was sort of, you know, by the numbers following yeah. instructions. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's, it's ironic and interesting in a way to kind of compare them side by side, um, how that that vision has evolved into this trope where women are now, in the profession anyway, um, seen as sexy and intelligent. Yeah. And in, in cultures, librarian cultures where they're not as female dominated, I'm thinking of like European librarian culture, um, there's there's more, there's a better male to female split, I think. And I'd, I'd wonder how these tropes stand up in those kind of librarian cultures and societies where, you know, it isn't necessarily such a feminized role, or even if we're switching from a sexy librarian to a sexy archivist, you know, archive, archives, <laughs> like the, the, the practice of archiving is traditionally a more male idea, right? Like there, you know, it, when you look at the actual divisions of men and women in our classes, for example, the archival core usually, I think it's weird this year, but I think usually the archival core is more, more not necessarily male dominated, but there are more men who are interested in pursuing that path. So I wonder kind of if in, in cultures where the female librarianship is, you know, not the standard, if these kinds of tropes still um, still hold up. But I also wonder about um, kind of the, the sexiness of the power that can be associated with librarianship too, because as a librarian, you are, the, you are a keeper of, of knowledge. And do you think that that power is something that can give it a, a sexual edge as well, or kind of that, Almost a almost a BDSM kind of <laughs> I don't know kind of idea of you know you're 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 the one who holds the power in that relationship you're the one who holds the access so what does that do for you? Yeah, I mean I think the um, I'm just thinking about my own experiences in reference and of course you know I've never had a directly like sexual reference experience or anything but there is that sense of sort of you are the keeper of this stuff you are the one with the the know-how to find what this person needs and there is a power differential there and there is gratitude involved and so perhaps there is a way to sexualize that too. Yeah, and I'm just thinking um, about what Ali said earlier, um, how archivists tend to be more um, male-dominated or male-represented rather. Um, I think the same holds true for um, other aspects of the profession where it's more technology-dominant, so like information. Um, architecture for example or system librarianship that that tends to have more males representing the field than females so i wonder if um the sexualization stops where you know people envision you know like a children's librarian for example someone who's very very good at the soft skills like hmm. people person not really technology oriented i wonder if that's where the stereotype kind of draws its strength from Rather than, you know, oh, this is a sexy librarian who can operate all these systems and, you know, program them like no one's business. Like, how sexy is that? Yeah, right? the power and knowledge involved can only go so far before it starts to yeah. uh, take on an intimidating edge. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think, I don't think you're going to see the, you know books that are props in say sexy librarian pornos be replaced <laughs> by iPads and you know <laughs> bad behind the scenes systems equipment anytime soon so they're yeah, definitely yeah. onto something there yeah they teach you how to navigate the catalog yeah. See that still works because a lot of places still have card catalogs. Or I, I think a better <laughs> no a better one would be let me teach you how to patch koha. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.
<laughs> you know, I know Vicky didn't do the intro with us, but I think if she had, that would have been her her tag. That's my that's my pickup line from now on. <laughs> So I guess, I mean, one aspect of this, we're talking about this in a very academic way, and as grad mm-hmm. students, we're used to doing that, but we're all female librarians, or female soon-to-be librarians. I mean, how do we feel about this? Vicki, how do you feel about this still being out there as a, a way that the profession is perceived? Um, well, I think all sexuality has some sort of powered edge to it. Um, I think on the one hand, you could see this as empowering, um, you know, using your you know, your feminine wiles or whatever to, you know, convince more people to visit the library, for instance, (laughs) getting more funding, not in the, you know, weird underhanded way where you sleep with your bosses, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Last ditch effort only, right? (laughs) I just, just to clarify, I don't do that. (laughs) But, um, so, you know, if any employer out there is wondering, um, why I'm applying, I'm not going to sleep with you. (laughs) Anyway, um, so there's that one aspect, and then there's also the demeaning aspect where it's like, you know, you want to be respected as a professional, um, and not just seen as, you know, you're a female in your profession, but you are a professional in your field. So, I don't know, I'm, a, I'm very mixed about, you know, like, ambivalent, really, about how this trope plays out um, in my daily life. I mean, the joke is, you know, at least one librarian every year in library school will dress up as a sexy librarian for Halloween. <laughs> well, and interestingly, last year at Slace, it was actually a male colleague of ours. Were oh. you there the day that Jason came in as Conan the Librarian? I didn't see that, but I know Judith also dressed up as... Oh, okay, all right. So we had we had a male and a female. It was very yeah. cool. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and there was also, I think, attempts at sexy archivists a year earlier. Oh, um, I think yeah. I missed that. Yeah, so the, there, is an, uh, there is an attempt to take up, you know, like... I mean, archivists are traditionally seen as antisocial and not very sexy. So I guess there is a kind of a, let's take back our Yeah, and so for us, we want to take it back to sort of make it into a joke and make it secondary to our yeah. identities as professionals, yeah. whereas maybe they want to use it as a stepping stone to hey you can approach us (laughs) (laughs) only you know so close but approach us and don't touch our stuff (laughs) well it's really funny because i just uh, i think the the thing that affects me the most about it is just the prevalence of the trope you know like because when you talk to uh, when you talk to a a person you know, a woman you know who's becoming a teacher, for instance, you don't automatically say, oh, are you gonna be a sexy teacher? You know, that's not that's not something you automatically say to someone who is getting a, a B.Ed. or whatever. Well, yeah, because you don't want them to associate with kids, right? Yeah, exactly, it's weird. <laughs> but like, as soon as you say, oh, I'm gonna be a librarian, I have had multiple people, male and female, be like, oh, well, are you gonna be a sexy librarian? And I'm just like, that's really the first thing that's gonna come to your mind. Not that I should be, you know, alienating half our audience here, but you have some weird friends. <laughs> That's true. And they are half our audience at this point. <laughs> I love my friends. Um, no, I'm just talking about, and you know, like, not, not family members, because that would be gross, but like, you know, cousins and stuff being just like, that, just the, that, that is the first thing that comes to mind. Not that... Not that you know. Oh, so you're going to be dealing with information, or oh, you even even if it's the misconception that librarians are the ones who shelve books, because I have yeah. never shelved a book in my goddamn life, and I probably never will. Not not to say that that's you know, not a bad choice. I'd love to shelve books. Well, just just to chime in there, I think um, in BC anyway, um, it's union protected, so you yeah. can't shelve. So books I actually even can't shelve books. To. That's like the one thing I cannot do is shelve a book. So. You know, it just like even if even, like that's the first thing that people come up with is like, oh, so you're gonna be a sexy librarian, and I'm just like, well, 
I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'd like to think I'm a sexy person, <laughs> but I, I guess. Do you, were you more or less offended by that than by the, you need a master's degree for that question? <laughs> I don't know. Um, probably, probably more offended just because the master's degree thing, I mean, it's a legitimate question. I mean, before before I learned about what the actual role of a librarian was, I had no idea that you needed master's degrees, hopefully multiple master's degrees to, to be able to be a successful in that field. So, you know, like that's that's a legitimate gap of knowledge that can be filled, whereas the automatic approach to a stereotype that is, I mean, potentially kind of harmful. I'm just gonna come out and say, I think that sometimes I think it can be used in harmful ways. Um, you know, just, just the automatic jumping to that. I found more offensive than the, you need you need to be really, really smart to do that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I probably agree with that. I mean, the whole, you need a master's degree question is a, is a teachable moment. Whereas the, so you're gonna be a sexy librarian is a little bit of a, so I just learned something new about you <laughs> kind of moment um i don't know i mean i wonder i was wondering at the beginning as we were talking about different professions i wonder how the on the spectrum of you know dewey's assistance mm -hmm. to sexy librarian where the sort of anarchist librarian trope fits in the punk librarian which we <laughs> i think we see a lot of these days as well and that one that one i love i mean I, there are some you know issues going too far with that one as well but I wonder if that one would exist without the sexy librarian because in some ways it is sort of a reaction against that it's a it's a focus on the purely intellectual aspects of what we can do and how far we can take that and that's sort of a, a reaction against so I don't know I don't know I don't find it particularly offensive but I haven't been in a situation where it would be considered offensive yet I mean I haven't been when I worked in retail, when I worked at chapters, there were some creepy dudes, but I have yet to have a creepy dude on the reference desk, so <laughs> maybe I'll change my mind <laughs> when that finally happens to me. But, uh, yeah. Well, on the reference desk, I haven't gotten a, you know, a sexy librarian guy or whatever, someone, or guy, and a person telling me that sexy librarian things, but I did get uh, rewarded with a very inappropriate riddle, um, which I'll share with you. Uh, so a guy comes up to the desk and he's looking for a book and all oh, that's great. Well, your book is over there. And he's like, okay, great. Well, to reward you, I'm going to tell you a riddle. And uh, it was especially awkward because I wasn't on the desk alone. I was on the desk with my training librarian. And um, so the fellow <laughs> says, so science has discovered a new kind of bee. This bee only feeds on milk. What kind of a bee is it? Do you want to guess, Vicky, what kind of a bee it is? Baby? It's a booby. Oh. Uh, and then he said, and then he went on to say something about a ghost, like it dressed up as a ghost or something and was going around yelling boo at people. And I'm just like, please go find your book, sir. This is... Also, if the reason that you find librarians attractive, if the whole sexy librarian thing holds, then part of the reason you're finding them attractive is their intelligence. And so at least tell a joke that makes sense. Vicky's answer makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't <laughs> um, so anyway um dirty jokes aside although we enjoy those too sometimes let us know what you think about 
the sexy librarian trope? Is it still the primary way that you perceive librarians if you're outside of the profession? If you're inside the profession, how do you feel about it? Does it empower you? Does it demean you? Do you not give a crap about it? <laughs> and if you have any good sexy librarian stories, like, you know, oh, the... The creepy people who call you sexy librarians, they're always fun. So, you know, let us know and we'll uh, we'll read your stuff out in the uh, in the show later on. So, yeah. Yeah, and we're hoping to talk about other, you know, librarian tropes, other ways that librarians are perceived in the media over time in this segment. So, again, help us name this segment. What should we call it? I think the only suggestion we've gotten so far is great buns. <laughs> Which is so appropriate when we're talking about this this trope of sexy librarianship and whether or not it's appropriate. Um, but I really hate that name. So we're not using that name at all. But we love the person who gave it to us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So that's our new As Yet Unnamed segment. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Vicki. You're welcome. Okay. So it's time for another edition of Class Z. 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 Zed. You told me I was doing the intro today. Zed. <laughs> Anyhow, so part of the reason we're happy to have Vicky here today is that um, she's doing some really interesting librarian work right now. So as, as you know, if you've been listening for the last few weeks, Class Zed is all about our work in the library world. So we talked a bit about our classes last time. Those are well underway now, and I'm sure the more underway they get, the less we're going to want to talk about them on the weekend. <laughs> but, um, but Vicky, so you've been working at the community library. I have. So it's called Out on the Shelves Library. All right. So for people who don't know much about community or about Out on the Shelves, you want to give us just sort of a little snapshot? For sure. Um, so community is... I think the only queer center in Vancouver and probably BC. Um, it's all run by grants and government funding. Um, so it's a great resource uh, center for queers, um, um, their allies, bi, trans, the whole gamut of sexual identities and orientations, um, just to find information they need. They run lots of groups um, for all ages. They have generations, which is for seniors. They have gap youth for people under 25. and you know, competency workshops for how to deal with, you know, um, queer people at the workplace, for people who aren't, you know, comfortable or familiar with, you know, so, so they run a lot of uh, good programs and workshops to just educate the community at large, um, how to, you know, work with queer people, how to, sorry, how to, um, you know, just, just, you know, treat them like normal people and, you know, so that kind of thing. Um, so it's resources both for people inside the queer community wanting to better communicate with the world and people outside the queer community who are better hoping to kind of envelop them into the fold kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, they get a lot of requests for workshops in particular. Um, I was talking to the education and outreach coordinator, Robin, um, and he does workshops pretty much every month training not, not just queer people, I mean, sorry, not just non-queer people, but, you know, queer people themselves, you know, because, you know, there's... There's a lot of issues going on and you know terms change all the time and sometimes you have a trans coworker and you don't know how to you know address them or how they would like to be addressed how they mm -hmm. would like so it's, it gives them kind of that um that introduction and that those skills to kind of talk to people without offending them yeah that's cool and the, so the library provides resources on a number of different things is it is an actual physical library space it is actually a physical library space it's one room <laughs> right next to the reception so we always get mistaken for reception um but it's it's all like all the books we have are donated to us we've never actually 
bought a book as far as we know um so we have i think right now up to 40 over seven over 4700 um catalog items wow we have dvds books magazines um granted it's a bit outdated because people donate stuff they've already used Mm -hmm. um but it's still a very um valuable resource because you know, we have vintage items, we have, you know, the classic works in queer literature, we have works by queer authors, and so it, it's a great place to actually, you know, find just queer, queer-oriented um, materials that you may not be able to find at VPL, etc. So how does the sort of membership process work? Like, how does the checking a book out process work <laughs> at Out on the Shelves? Actually, I'm really pleased to announce this. Um, before, you had to be a member um, at Community. So you had to pay a membership fee, which would give you, um, you know, privileges, um, not just at the library, but at the resource center as a whole. And you can vote at AGMs and stuff. But recently, management has changed their um, stance on that. So you could actually... Um, just be a library-only member. It's completely free. Just have to sign up at the library, and you can take out books. Um, we as many as you want, up to ten. Um, so that's been going really well. A lot of people have renewed their interest in the library, and we've had I think almost twenty people sign up using the free membership because that's all they're really interested in. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah and I guess that shows you how much interest there is in the the library itself as a part of what the center does, yeah. right? And do you also offer reference services as well? We do. We have a lot of, um, all all our volunteers are, um, for the most part, uh, library students like us, um, library tech students. And we have a few people who are just interested in library work um, who don't have any training, but we provide the training for them. So we do get a lot of reference requests. Um, I've had people come in asking for queer-related meditation books. I don't know if they actually exist. (laughs) I had to do my own (laughs) research there. Uh, We've also had a lot of requests for lesbian materials, um, and Mm -hmm. that's one of the things we really need because a lot of our donations are from queer men, so obviously their interests are catered towards queer men-related materials. So Mm -hmm. anytime we get lesbian donations, we are really happy and want to advertise that. And do you... um, So the... the the call for donations, do you think you'll ever get grant money to actually be able to manage the collection in a more sustainable way to sort of grow the collection with your with your own volition or your own direction? That's that's the dream. Um, I have to say that we are we we don't get any money from any like we, we are only funded by the community itself, which gets its money from you know grant money and stuff. So and, and we're run completely by volunteers. We don't have a full time librarian. So it's it's really dependent on you know our own human resources. And right now we don't have the time to actually research grants. So we are just thriving on the generosity of our volunteers and our patrons and whatever they're willing to give us. And occasionally we get large donations that aren't really relevant to the collection, which we then sell to get our funding. Um, oh, that's great. So that's that's worked really well. Right now we're still selling um, comic books. Actually, we have vintage comics from the. From the 80s onwards, mostly 90s stuff, and we've been getting a lot of people interested in buying them for their kids or for their own collections. So we still have a few boxes left if anyone's interested in coming in. And that's browsing. great. We'll totally plug that here. We'll yeah. make sure we'll make sure that there are you know links to all of this stuff in the show yeah, notes. Yeah, and find it's the really, center and all that really kind of cheap. Stuff. It's like 10 cents, at, like you know, awesome. cheapest. I'm gonna come down there. <laughs> <laughs> and some of them are worth more because they're they're more um, valuable. But you know, it's it's very very affordable. So there is sort of a basic like collection policy in place so that you can go through those gifts and kind of decide what fits the library? There is a collections policy and it's interesting you brought that up because I'm actually going to head up to a meeting um, in a few hours to talk with my other coordinator um, and we're actually going to develop that collections policy in full because I studied it 
but it's nowhere near completion. Um, so we have some basic guidelines that I um, tell my volunteers to follow. Um, you know, it has to be recent, preferably published 2000 or later, unless it's a classic. Um, and it has to be queer related. And by that, I mean it has to be like 50% queer content. Okay. Um, however you decide to measure that. What about works by, say, like a queer author that doesn't necessarily fit that 50% queer content ratio? That is a I very imagine good that's <laughs> a little unusual, but it probably exists. Yeah, that's right? a very good question. We actually had that come up in our last meeting um, where people were like, what do we do with these books? And we know the author's queer, um, but it's not necessarily all queer related content. And my suggestion is academic merit. If it has academic merit, we keep it. Okay. Um, if, it if it's not really, you know. Because we do have a lot of researchers come in um, hmm. using our books. So That's great. We, we, we want to target their, their needs as well. Um, so if, if it has some merit in terms of academia or education, then we keep it. If not, then awesome. we kind of try to sell it. So it sounds like you're getting some really good experience in like collection management and policy development and all that kind of stuff <laughs> in this gig. Do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about, especially for our like library school colleagues or prospective library school colleagues out there, sure. how you got into this situation in the first place? Yeah, so uh, I was in my first term at Slace and I really wanted that first term just, just for learning. Um, and after that term, I decided that you know, work experience is really important and valuable in our profession. And I had a hard time getting jobs at first, so um, I realized that community was asking for a library coordinator um, because the previous coordinators um, had just graduated uh, the same program that we were in. And so they were looking for a replacement. So I decided, why not? I went in, I did an interview, they were happy with me. They took me on. They said, "Congratulations, you're you're going to manage your library." And I'm like, "That's great! I've never managed a library before." Um, so it was, it was a learning it was a learning process um, throughout. Um, usually, they have two coordinators. Um, so I ended up actually, you know, involved in the hiring process for the other coordinator. Um, things kind of happened midway. So for the last six months, I was the only coordinator, mm. and that was that was really challenging because you know it's a two-person job, and being the one who has to tell everyone what to do is very challenging if you've never had like management experience before, which I didn't really. Mm -hmm. um, but luckily, we just hired a new coordinator, and she's also in Slice, so I'm very happy with that <laughs> development. I no longer have to deal with everything myself, so I'm very happy about that. So that yeah, that's how I really got into it. Um, I'm not queer myself. I'm an ally, um, and that they're cool with that. Um, they welcome allies. So it's a really welcoming environment. It's really great for you know if you're just a starting librarian and you really want experience, because everything is... You know, you, you set your own policies, you set your own rules. It's a very collaborative experience, and um, it, it looks great on your resume. Yeah. And um, I completely forgot my question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was going to say, what are, the, what are the library hours like? So are, if, if the library is open, do you always have somebody on staff, or...? That's a good question. We recently changed our policy. Um, before, it was, you know, dependent on the volunteers' time commitments. Right now, we're sticking to a schedule. It's Mondays to Thursdays from 12 to 7. Well, that's good hours. Yeah. Um, if we get more volunteers down the road, we might even expand it to Friday. But mm -hmm. for now, it is Monday to uh, Thursday, 12 to 7. So there will always be a, um, a library volunteer on duty, and they can answer reference questions, you know, provide you with resources, etc. So the researchers that come in, are they normally kind of from our area, or are people seeking out the community on the shelf out on the shelves library as a kind of a, a space outside of just our area? 
That's interesting because on our website, um, our traffic tells us that we have a lot of visitors outside of Canada, which oh, is cool. interesting because, yeah. you know, you think people who go who Google community would be from the Vancouver area or at least the greater Vancouver area. But we actually get a lot of traffic on the website from people outside of Canada. Um, in terms of people who actually come in in person to the library, we have researchers, you know, from SFU, from UBC. Um, recently, I met a researcher who is based out of um, the University of Alberta mm -hmm. who had just finished her core work, her classes, so she, she's free to, you know, operate wherever she wants and so she's doing her research on gay straight alliances and she came to cool. our library looking for resources on that <laughs> um, and so we had a very good conversation about you know her her research um, and what she's doing for you know the, the knowledge that's being generated around um, the queer community and you know how we can better help queer people in general from the coming up process to you know as they age you know what kind of services we can provide so that was really informative and educational cool so the the kind of the, the gay straight alliance the the most connection i have of course with that is through through my high school career mm -hmm. and in my early high school career i was going career i was going to high school in arizona where we had a gay straight alliance but we weren't allowed to call it that um just because of the conservatism of the area we weren't right. allowed to have a club with the name gay in the title so I think we came up with the name uh, Bridges Beyond Tolerance <laughs> was the was the name we came up with and that was accepted. But it basically was. I mean, like it was kind of an overall acceptance club, you right. know, but it was it was it was a gay straight line. So she, was she mostly looking at sort of that high school level or kind of going beyond? Because like I would I would think that organization beyond the high school level might be a little bit more difficult. Yeah, actually, it's interesting because she was interested in um, people younger than the high school level. She was oh, cool. interested in elementary school students and nice. junior high students. Get and while they're young. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because at that, at that age, you're still being taught, you know, gender norms and social norms. And, um, you know, you don't really have a preconceived notion of, of you know, what gender is and what sexual orientation is. Um, and so you can just sort of slide that in there as one of the norms. At that yeah, age, right? at That's that age, great. they're very, they're very impressionable. I mean, some people argue that, you know, it's a weakness. But I think at that age, you, they're at their, their, their mind is at their most open right now they're just absorbing all the time um which is why childhood passes so slowly for you know <laughs> if you remember your own childhood you know like whole grade one lasts forever for me anyway yeah um and so she was interested in that but she recognizes you know like at that age they're they're very not autonomous at all they're they're still very much um being controlled by adults and she was interested in that particularly because she was saying how that is a very strong political statement because if you're that young and you're demanding a gay straight alliance. You're 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 reinventing the notion of you know autonomy because we associate autonomy with adults, with young adults. Hmm. You know, like they have their political rights. And if you're if you're only eight or nine and you're already asserting rights for yourself for your sexual orientation, that is very threatening to adults. I mean, that can be interesting to adults, but it's also very threatening if you're an older adult and you're used to running the show. And so she was looking at it from that perspective, and she was very interested in the research in that area, which I thought yeah. was very fascinating. That is fascinating because when I mean, we have all of these really important and effective things on sort of the rights of the child, right? Yeah. Whether in a national or national, but I wonder where access to information and access to information about mm. yeah, who makes up the world around you falls under yeah. those things. Maybe it could be strengthened. And even and even at the high school level, it's still a very strong political statement. If you're only 16, 17 and you're saying, look, this is my right, my right to be accepted for who I am and to, to stand out as a gay member of society, it's very empowering to, for them and also kind of intimidating for adults because it's like, you know, it just, just like, you know, throws everything in the face of convention. You know, it's like, you know, what do we do? I mean, this is a, this is a young adult trying to assert his or her rights. Hmm. And, you know, you have to be accommodating, you know, in light of, you know, educational policies and your school policies. So it's, 
But you also have to examine whether or not those policies need to be yeah. adapted. So, right? so, so it's it's, yeah. it's just you know pushing change on you know that structure, and it it can be a very empowering experience. It can also be very interesting for researchers. Hmm. You know, like what is that saying about our society, and you know, in, in light of history, and you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, the fact that Vancouver or that the West Coast in general is sort of seen as a a maybe more accepting place, particularly mm-hmm. for people in the queer community than other yeah. areas. I wonder if that. If, is that drawing a lot of people to community as well? Do you think that it, it sees it? They see it as a place where these kind of conversations, this kind of access to information, can start and maybe I think move so. Um, it's it's a very comprehensive resource center. The other thing I forgot to mention is that we also have an SDI clinic, so we have people from the queer community who feel comfortable going to that center because they know it's it's for them. It's not just any you know like they won't be judged. It's very friendly and welcoming. Yeah. And so we provide comprehensive services for you know anyone of any age. Um, especially for queer people, and I think that is very important um, as a starting place for these dialogues to happen, because if you don't have that welcoming space, people are more afraid to speak up. Yeah. So is is community kind of a, a unique space in in sort of that, that queer resource center, or, or is there kind of a network throughout, I don't know, North America or internationally, do you communicate with a lot of these other centers, or is community and their library kind of a, kind of a shining gem in, in Vancouver's feathered... <laughs> Cap. For my research, um, I know there are definitely other networks um, outside of BC. Um, there's one in uh, Ontario, actually. I think London has a Pride Library in the, uni- the University of Western Ontario. And they're called the Pride Library, and they have 6,000 catalog items, and they're also run by volunteers, which is I, amazing. I went to Queen's, so I'm not allowed to like anything <laughs> about Western, but that's respectable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've actually had one person come in one day um, who said, she, I forgot where she was from. She was from one of the Prairie Provinces, I believe. Mm-hmm. And she said, they're just starting their own queer resource center, and they wanted Great. to look at us for uh, like a model to like you know emulate and to build on. And so she was very excited about this library because you know they don't have one. And so she was actually like asking me questions and taking pictures, and it was great. It was, it's just nice to know that there is a network out there. Yeah, we do have partnerships with people in the community. I don't know how far that partnership extends, but we're always very welcoming um, with other networks. We're always trying to build our, you know, knowledge and resources together. So, um, yeah, for sure, there are networks and there are partnerships. In place. And how long has community been around? As far as I know, it started in the 1970s. I think it was 1972, but don't quote me on that. <laughs> That's great. And so, and out on the shelves itself is a little younger than that, or um, I think it was. I think around that time, people started just donating books, like as right. a curiosity kind of thing. Like, here's some books. Do you would you like some? So, community really like the out on the shelves library actually started as a heap of books <laughs> in a room, dusty, raw library yeah. material. And um, it was only with the work of recent um, library volunteers that we actually organized it into a collection, and we actually have our own special cataloging system. And recently, I'm really excited because up until last year, we had a card catalog system, and it was very 50s oh, vintage. And I, <laughs> I pushed for it hard, and we actually um, trans, you know, transformed the card catalog system, and we're actually on Access now. We have a database. Nice. So yay, All right. technology. <laughs> that database course at Slays is coming in handy, right? <laughs> or at least even 500. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true, true. Um, so, okay, so if anyone who's listening and is in the Vancouver area wants to come check you guys out, 
code or wants to say volunteer to help oh, out course. in the library yeah can they get in touch with you about that or in touch with community about that uh they can always get in touch um we actually have a volunteer coordinator for that um position, th for that responsibility so we're at 1170 Butte Street. It's right on Butte and Davy. If you know the Rainbow Crosswalk, that's where we are. Awesome. Um, and if you ever want to volunteer, not just with the library, but with other groups, um, it's volunteers at community.ca. Already. And we, yeah, we'll throw all the contact info and great. the address and everything in the show notes. That's yeah. great. Thank you so much, Vicki. You're welcome. That's awesome. It's and so great to see a, a Slacer, like a colleague <laughs> of ours, doing such great work in the community. Yeah, that's, it seems like a really incredible library and a really incredible resource center. So thank you so much for talking to us about You're it. It's really, it's really lovely. And um, yeah, so please do check out our show notes if you do listen through uh, through your iTunes or through your uh, your whatever your regular podcast listening device is. Um, do check our website. We do put a lot of cool stuff in the show notes. Um, so yeah, so we'll put all the information about community. And again, thank you so much. That was amazing. You're welcome. That was fun. And that's our show for this week. I had so much fun. Uh, Vicky was a great guest. I had a lot of fun talking to her. And uh, just to tap on our conversation from last week about getting involved in your library school career, mm. um, we got a couple of hits on uh, Twitter from that. And it seems that the consensus is mostly that people will take the first term to uh, kind of find their feet in the program and get back into the idea of going to school and then start to look into opportunities um, once, they've, once they've gotten into it a little bit. So I'd like to expend a special, extend a special thank you to at Scholar Demick and at Adina Tamsin on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining our conversation. And if you want to um, get in contact with us about this week's show, uh, talk to us about naughty librarians or um, queer outreach in libraries, that would be amazing. Um, our Twitter together is at SS Librarianship. Or if you have a particular question for me or Sam, I'm at Bulbasoria on Twitter. And Sam is at Spinning Sam. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, our SS Librarianship. Uh, Twitter just hit 30 followers. 30 whole people. Big, big milestone. Oh, so um, lovely. Yeah, and it seems to be a good mix of people we know, people we don't know, people who are interested in joining the conversation, so <laughs> it's great. Uh, you can also, as always, find us on Tumblr and the SS Librarianship Tumblr, which kind of started out as mine and has become ours as the show has grown. <laughs> has grown to almost 100 followers over yeah. the last little while. And a lot Very of that is, is you guys wanting to check out the show, and we think that's fantastic. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for, for joining us on Tumblr, which is yep. a fun place to be. And, yeah, you can also find, you know, anything else that you need on the show at our website, sslibrarianship.com. And we recently passed the 1,000 hit mark. Yeah, we've had 1,000 page views. So yeah. that's very cool. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much uh, for, for listening in this week. Yeah. Um, and as always, we want to thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart, which is a fantastic album. If you haven't checked it out already, go check it out. You can get it straight from his website, jonathancolton.com, or through any of your normal music venues. And I'd like to just say thank you again to Vicky Chan for such an amazing conversation really today. Fantastic. I learned a lot. I learned great. a lot, too. Yeah. It, was a, it was really great, and I hope everybody else learned something as well. And just a thank you to all of our listeners and the people who've been supporting us so far. Um, I feel like I'm finally getting to the point where when people talk to me about the podcast, I don't think they're automatically making fun of me. So, um, <laughs> so thank you so much for, for listening and supporting we friends, family, librarians, people who don't know us. Um, but yeah, get in touch. Thanks again. We love you, and um, we'll see you on the proverbial flip side. Bye.